please turn in your Bibles to the last book of the Bible, uh, to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22, we'll be reading uh, the first five verses. We're coming to the end of this book, uh, and this is really a, a marvelous section of the book of Revelation uh, because it, it reminds us of what awaits us. And it should, knowing what awaits us, should have an impact on how we live our lives now. You've heard that saying, oh, they're so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. That, that shouldn't be the case. As Christians, we should be heavenly minded and that should translate into the way we live our lives here and the way we we raise our children, the way we do our jobs, the, the way we do our homework at school. All of that is, is affected by knowing what God has in store for us. And so this morning, we want to look at the first five verses of Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Have you ever uh, been somewhere before, somewhere beautiful, somewhere relaxing, uh, somewhere where you can just kind of turn your mind off, and, and as you sit in that beautiful, peaceful, relaxing place, you, you say to yourself, this is paradise. Maybe you've experienced that somewhere before. First time I went to Hawaii was in 2007. Uh, there used to be a, a URC on the island of Kauai. Some of you, I think, have been there before. It doesn't exist today, but it used to be there, and I had gone over there to preach for them a couple of Sundays. And... At a certain point, um, Mem and I and the girls went to a place called Polahale, Polahale State Beach. Polahale is, is located on the, on the west side of the island, kind of at the end of, of the Nepali coast. Beautiful, beautiful area. It's, it's accessed by a, a 15 or, or 20 mile unpaved road that's just filled with potholes. And, and it takes a, a really, really long time to get there because of the, the state of that road. The Polahali Beach is this 17-mile-long, beautiful white sand beach. And, and because you have to take that unpaved road to get there, not too many people go to Polahali State Beach. It, it, it's very, very unpopulated. But you sit at a place like that, and that's what you say to yourself. This is paradise. And, and let's face it, God has given us many beautiful things in this world. 
God's creation is amazing and and beautiful and marvelous. So whether you're a, a beach person or a mountain person or whatever, there's so many places in this world that, that are just stunningly beautiful. But there is something way better that, that lies ahead for us. That the Bible tells us that there is something far better than a beautiful white sand beach. And, and that is what this section of Revelation has been telling us. John has told us about the new heaven and the new earth. He's, he's told us about the new Jerusalem. And, and today, a new detail is added for us. More detail that paints for us a, a glorious picture of what is ahead for you, Christian. What God has promised to his people. Now, the best way to, to picture this section of Revelation is to see the first part of chapter 21 as the foundation. Um, in other words, verses 1 through 8 of Revelation 21 are, are kind of the starting point. That's where John tells us about the new heaven and the new earth. And, and if you were here a few weeks ago, you might remember what John tells us there. He, he tells us that in the new heaven and new earth there will be no more evil. There will be no more pain or crying or sorrow or death. Many of you have experienced that at some point in your life. Probably all of us have gone through some period of, of great sorrow and great grief and, and mourning and sadness, maybe recently. But, but the new heaven and the new earth, all of the results of sin, that, that will all be gone forever. And, and then as you make your way through chapter 21, John tells us more details. Verse 19 through verse 27, he, he adds a piece that the new heaven and new earth will be pictured as a beautiful city, the, the new Jerusalem. And it will be a beautiful place. It will be a secure place. It will be a place where we will dwell in safety with our God for all eternity. And now we come to our passage this morning, and this is another piece in the puzzle. This is something else that John now adds on. The, the new heaven and new earth will not only be a place where all the results of sin are gone, it, it will not only be a place that is likened to a, a beautiful, secure city, but will, it will also be a place that is like a beautiful garden. And one of the things I want you to notice in this passage is that there's a, a very strong connection between this passage and the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, especially chapters 1 and 2 and the Garden of Eden. And so we want to consider three things this morning. First of all, there is the throne of God. Second, there is the river of life. And third, there is the tree of life. The throne of God, the river of life, and the tree of life. Take a look at verse 1. John says, Then an angel, the angel, showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Now, children, thrones are very prominent in the book of Revelation. In fact, it's interesting, in, in the New Testament, the word throne or thrones is used 62 times. 47 of those 62 times it's found in the book of Revelation. And, and here we are being directed specifically to the throne of God. 
Now, if you were here months ago when we were in chapter 4, you might remember that there in chapter 4, we are told some things about the throne of God. If if you have your Bible open, turn to chapter 4 of Revelation. I want you to notice a couple of things about God's throne. Revelation chapter 4. And take a look at verse 2. Revelation 4, 2, John says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Drop down to verse 6. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Notice three things about God's throne. First of all, John says that God's throne stood in heaven. That word, that Greek word that's translated stood, has the idea of permanence. God's throne is fixed. God's throne is secure. God's throne can't be moved. You all know that that things in our world fluctuate. Things in our world change all the time. Stock markets fluctuate. Technology is is always being updated. Politicians come and go. But God doesn't change. His kingdom cannot be moved. His throne is secure. Second, John also tells us here that there's a a rainbow around the throne. Now, Now we know what the world has done with the rainbow. But the rainbow is something God uses to to remind us of his promise. Children, do you remember that promise? That promise that that God will never again destroy this world with a flood. And and for the Christian, there's, there's an added benefit to the rainbow. Every time you see a rainbow, if you're a Christian, you can be reminded that the war is over. The enmity between you and God has been removed Jesus took the wrath of God so that you will never face it. And then the third thing that John tells us here in chapter 4 about this throne is that before God's throne there is a sea of glass. The picture is that everything is calm. Everything is serene. Everything is peaceful. Nothing catches God by surprise. And so here we are in Revelation chapter 22 and and we once again see the throne of the great king. This is the one who who keeps all of his promises. This is the one who has made it possible that we may be at peace with him. And, And this is the one who is in complete and utter control of all things. You may feel at times that your life is out of control. You may feel that your life is so uncertain and topsy-turvy. God never feels that way. God is in control of all things. There's something else, though, that we learn here in chapter 22. If you go back there now to our passage, you'll notice that the river of life flows from God's throne. And it flows through the middle of the street. The picture here is that that God is the source of all things. God is at the center of all things. Now, as I said to you earlier, it it may not be readily apparent to you, but but there's an allusion to the opening chapters of Genesis. Without going into too much detail, the the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 presents us with this, this amazing picture that God is the great king. 
Children, do you remember what happens in, in Genesis 1 and 2? Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that, that God creates all things in six days. And, and then Genesis chapter 2 says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. The picture here in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God in six days creates all things and then he takes his seat on his royal throne. And and now as the Bible began in Genesis 1 and 2, so it ends. God is still on that throne. And the point that's being made here in Revelation 22 is that the new heaven and the new earth will be God-centered. It will be centered upon him. All that we will have will come from his throne and all that we do will be done to honor and to glorify him. In other words, Christian, for all eternity, God will be the source of your life and God will be the goal of your life. Now, if that's going to be true in eternity... Isn't it true that that's what we should remember in this life? In other words, children, remember everything you have in this life comes from God. Every good gift comes from him. Children, your your family comes from God. Your food comes from him. Your friends come from him. Your house comes from him. Your clothing comes from him. Your friends come from him. God is the source of all of those good gifts. We take a lot of those things for granted, don't we? We take our family for granted. We take our our homes for granted. We take our food for granted. We have to remember that all those things come from him. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no change. How often, how often do we stop and thank God, really thank him for the things he's blessed us with? He's the source of all things in our lives right now and he will be the source of all things in our lives for all eternity. In addition, not only is God the source of our lives, he's also the goal of our lives. In other words, all that we do in this life should be done to honor and to glorify him. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. It's a very simple verse, but it's a, it's a verse that all of us would do well to keep in the front of our minds at all times. Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Even in the, even the seemingly mundane things of life, like eating your meal or drinking a beverage, all of that is to be done for God's glory. And so John pictures for us here the the throne of the king. He he reminds us that that for all eternity, that the sovereign, promise-keeping, unchanging king of all will provide for us. He will be the source of of all that we are and all that we need. And, And we, in turn, for all eternity, will give him thanks and praise for who he is. Brothers and sisters, this is our God. 
He's on his throne now. He is the king now, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. Second thing we see here is the river of life. John says in verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. Children, did you know that in the world of the Bible, drinking water was, was often very hard to come by? Now, now we don't, we don't, that doesn't compute with us. You, you walk into your kitchen and you, you turn on the faucet, you get water out of the, the tap, or you go to the fridge and get water out of the door, or you go into the fridge and get a bottle of water from the refrigerator. Uh, we, are, we are blessed that, that today our, our drinking water is pretty dependable. Um, but in the ancient world, and, and this is true even in, in many parts of the world today, drinking water was scarce. Drinking water was, was hard to come by. People had to depend upon rivers or, or streams or, or rainfall. And in the Bible, um, water symbolizes life. Without water, you, you die. And, and it doesn't just symbolize this kind of life, it, it also symbolizes eternal life. You might remember a, uh, an encounter that, that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Uh, he meets this woman at a well and, and he, he basically says to her, if you knew who I am, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And then he Jesus looks at the, at the well water and, and he says to this woman, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. I, I take a drink out of this bottle and it's not much longer, I'm thirsty again. Jesus says, you, you drink from this water that we're pulling out of this well, you're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so rivers and, and water symbolize that, that God will satisfy us, that he will give us life, and not just life in this world, but abundant life, eternal life. And so in the river of life, this, this wonderful picture is being painted for us here that, that, that God is at the center of all things, that, that he will provide for us, that he will give us eternal life, life with him that, that will never end. Our lives here will end one day, but eternal life will never end. A couple other things I want you to notice about the river of life. First of all, did you notice that the water, this is very interesting to me, the water doesn't come from outside of the city. You know, in the ancient world, it was normal that you would get your drinking water from outside the city. And in that day, if, if your enemy wanted to attack you, if your enemy wanted to invade and overthrow your city, there are a number of things that your enemy would do. Um, they, they would use battering rams to try and knock down the city wall. They would use siege ramps to try and get over the wall into your city. But before any of that, the first thing that they would do is they would attempt to cut off your water supply. They wouldn't have to get inside your city to do that. They wouldn't have to knock down the walls to do that. Your water supply would typically be located outside the city. And so the first thing that they would do is they would try to cut off your water supply. 
if they cut off your water supply, you're not going to survive for very long. But, but notice what we're told here in Revelation 22. In the New Jerusalem, the water doesn't come from outside the city. The water comes from within the city. The water comes from God himself. And the picture is that, that not only will God supply all of our needs, but there's no enemy that can harm us or harm the eternal city. This was hinted at in the Old Testament. Psalm 46 says there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Zechariah 14 says living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Psalm 87 says the source of my life springs from Jerusalem. And, and this is just building on one of the themes that we saw in the last chapter, that in the eternal city we will be secure. We will be secure. No enemy will be able to attack us. No enemy will be able to overthrow us or overcome us. The water comes from inside the city, from the very throne of God. And secondly, we are being told here that what was held out to Adam in the Garden of Eden is now given to us freely and fully forever. In Genesis 2, uh, verse 10, we are told that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Now, now remember something, and we, we looked at this when we did our series on covenant theology a number of months ago. Um, God entered into a covenant with Adam in the garden. It's a, ca- a covenant that we commonly refer to as the covenant of works. If Adam kept the terms of the covenant, if Adam obeyed God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have um, earned for himself and for his posterity eternal life. But he failed. He blew it. He disobeyed God's command. He plunged the entire human race into sin and death. But many years later, Jesus Christ came as the second Adam, and he did what the first Adam didn't do. He kept all of God's commands perfectly, and he earned for his people, for all who would believe in him, he earned for us eternal life. And so I think what we're being told here in the tree of life is that for, or in the river of life, that for all eternity, we will remember what Jesus did for us. We will remember what he earned for us. And so you have the throne of God, you have the river of life, and then you have the tree of life. Verse 2, back to Revelation 22, tells us that on either side of the river will be the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is another connection of Genesis, isn't it? Another connection of Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, we are told about the tree of life that was in the middle of the Garden of Eden. Now, now what exactly was the tree of life in the Garden of Eden? Louis Burkhoff, in his book, Systematic Theology, makes the point that the tree of life was the sacrament of the covenant of works. Now, maybe you've never heard this before, and you might say, what, what in the world did Burkhoff mean that the tree of life was the sacrament in the covenant of works. Well, what is a sacrament? A sacrament is a sign and a seal. As a sign, a sacrament points to something, 
And as a seal, a sacrament promises something. For example, think about baptism. Baptism is a sign that that points us to the fact that it is the blood of Jesus that washes away our sins. And baptism is also a seal that promises forgiveness to all, to anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. And so Burkhoff makes the point, and it's usually good to agree with Burkhoff, he makes the point that the tree was a sacrament. As a sign, it, it was pointing to the eternal life that Adam would earn if he obeyed. And it was a seal that, that it was a guarantee that God would fulfill his promise of eternal life if Adam did obey. Well, Revelation 22 tells us that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be the tree of life. It will, it will serve as a sign and a seal of the eternal life that Jesus won for you. A couple more things to notice about this tree of life. First of all, John tells us that the tree of life produces 12 kinds of fruit. Children, that's kind of odd, isn't it? That a tree produces 12 kinds of fruit. Apple trees normally produce what? Apples. Not, not oranges, not apricots. They produce apples. And, and notice that it produces fruit Year-round, the the picture here is abundance. God will sustain us and he will keep us in the eternal life and the salvation he's given to us forever and ever. And second, notice the leaves of this tree is for the healing of the nations. Now at first this seems kind of, uh, well, problematic, right? Right? You mean to tell me that in the new heaven and new earth, there's going to be illness that people need to be healed from? Well, no. I I think the first part of verse 3 gives us an indication of what this means. It says in verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed. The point is being made that, that the curse of sin will be gone. The effects of sin will be gone. Sickness and and disease and illness will be gone. That's what's meant by the healing of the nations. We will enjoy full, complete, and total salvation, soul and body. Some of you sit here this morning and you're very thankful right now for this promise. You're not going to have any more pain in your body. You're not going to have any more high blood pressure. You're not going to have any more heart disease. All of those things will be gone forever. And don't miss that word nations. It's a reminder that the kingdom of God is not just a bunch of white people. It's not just one ethnicity. It's not just one region. The new heaven and the new earth will be multi-ethnic, multi-racial. All of the racism, all of the hostility between nations, all of that is going to be gone forever. And, And this is something that, in a sense, we as a congregation should work for right now. We should desire that that our congregation be a multiracial congregation. 
We should decry all forms of racism. We should decry things like kinism, which is being taught in some Christian churches today. We should speak out against these things. Racism is is not honoring to God. Thankfully, it will not be present in the eternal state. And we pray that that God would continue to make our congregation a congregation that's made up of all kinds of different people because that's what we will see for all eternity. Notice two things as we close. First of all, verse 4 says, They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Won't that be something? One day you're going to see Jesus. One day you're going to see the one who died for you. The picture is that that we will enjoy perfect and intimate fellowship with the triune God forever. And we will belong to him. That's the significance of his name being written on our foreheads. We will belong to him forever forever some of us um, struggle with the feeling of belonging we, we go somewhere and we feel like we don't belong we go somewhere and we feel like we're on the outside looking in Christian you belong to God and, and you will belong to him forever you will see your savior one day face to face And then secondly, notice verse 5 says, night will be no more. Many of us don't like the dark, right? When we're kids especially, we don't like being in a dark room. It's kind of scary. In the Bible, um, night is a picture of evil. In the Bible, night is a picture of sadness and despair. There's coming a day we we will never experience those things ever again. And so we have this this amazing picture that's being painted for us here, this amazing description of what awaits us. And I wonder sometimes, um, how thankful are we for that? How much does this passage affect my life tomorrow? Has someone ever given you something before and you you said, I don't deserve this? Maybe they gave you a gift or or maybe some token of their appreciation and it was was way more than than you even imagined and and you said either to them or to yourself, you know, I don't deserve this. We we read these chapters, 21 and 22, and... We, we read about what awaits us. The new Jerusalem, the new heaven and new earth, this incredible garden with the river of life and the tree of life. Won't it be great that we won't sin anymore? Won't, won't it be amazing that, that evil will be gone? That sickness and disease and death will be gone? We won't need medication. We won't need doctors. No offense to our nurses, but we won't need you. Probably won't need preachers anymore either. 
But we read this and we hear this. And like somebody who gave you an amazing gift, you say to yourself, I don't deserve this. That's what makes the gospel so amazing and so incredible. And, and that's what makes God's love for us so wonderful. I think we reform people sometimes don't talk enough about God's love for us. And we don't stand amazed at, at how much he loves us and how much he's promised us. I don't deserve this. It's all because of Jesus, isn't it? It's all because of our Savior. I really love what Charles Spurgeon once said about what will be on our minds for all eternity. Here's what Spurgeon said. Jesus chose me. Jesus loves me. Jesus bought me. Jesus washed me. Jesus robed me. Jesus kept me. Jesus glorified me. Here I am in paradise entirely because of Jesus. I think that's what we'll all be thinking when we stand in his presence one day. It's all because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your love. We thank you for your promises to us. Lord, help us to believe, to embrace these promises. Help us, Lord, to live our lives right now in light of these promises. We are so blessed with so much more than we deserve. May our lives give evidence of our thankfulness to you, we pray in Jesus' name.